1: Welcome to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Every month, we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. That's anything from a 20th all the way up to a 100th anniversary. This is your faithful host, Eric Martin, creator of the Cineverse blog and moderator of the weekly Cineverse Film Discussion Group. And if you're just discovering our program, welcome. If you're a regular listener, we are excited to have you back. Over the course of seven decades, a lot of rain will fall. But there's one cinematic rainstorm sequence that will never fall into obscurity thanks to the exuberant hoofing and euphoric singing of Gene Kelly, the star and co-director of *Singing in the Rain, which went into wide release on April 11, 1952, 70 years ago. This month, we pay tribute to this crown jewel of Hollywood movie musicals on its 70th birthday. And befitting of this celebration, we have a very special guest joining us, None other than Turner Classic Movies host Alicia Malone, who has authored a newly released book called Girls on Film, Lessons from a Life of Watching Women in Movies. Alicia and I will examine why Singing in the Rain remains a bona fide classic 70 years later, why it still matters, its cultural impact and legacy, and what we can learn from all this genius singing and dancing today. Immediately following my chat with Miss Malone, I'm going to visit briefly with Brian Eggert, He's the film critic, essayist, and owner of DeepFocusReview.com. Brian and I will discuss the collaboration between Gene Kelly and his co-director on this film, Stanley Donnan, as well as Kelly's unique approach to what he called CineDance. So ahead of these discussions, let's eat our vegetables for a moment and get a better sense of when, why, and how Singing in the Rain happened, courtesy of our friends at Wikipedia. Singing in the Rain is a 1952 American musical romantic comedy directed and choreographed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan, starring Kelly, Donald O'Connor, and Debbie Reynolds, and featuring Gene Hagan, Millard Mitchell, and Sid Charisse. It offers a lighthearted depiction of Hollywood in the late 1920s, with the three stars portraying performers caught up in the transition from silent films to talkies. Singing in the Rain was originally conceived by MGM producer Arthur Freed, the head of the Freed Unit, responsible for turning out MGM's lavish musicals, as a vehicle for his catalog of songs written with Nacho Herb Brown for previous MGM musical films of the 1929 to 1939 period. Screenwriters Betty Comden and Adolph Green wrote one entirely new song, Moses Supposes, with music director Roger Edens providing the music. Friedan Brown wrote a new song for the movie as well called Make em Laugh. Some of the songs, such as Broadway Rhythm, Should I, and especially Singin' in the Rain itself have been featured in numerous other films. Singin' in the Rain was only a modest hit when it was first released. According to MGM Records, during the film's initial theatrical release, it made $3,263,000 in America and Canada and $2,367,000 internationally earning the studio a relatively paltry profit of $666,000. It was the 10th highest grossing movie of the year in 1952 in the United States and Canada. O'Connor won the Golden Globe Award for Best Actor, Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy, and Betty Comden and Adolph Green won the Writers Guild of America Award for their screenplay, while Gene Hagen was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Now, Singin' in the Rain has since been accorded legendary status by contemporary critics and it's often regarded as the greatest film musical ever made and one of the finest films ever created, as well as the greatest film made in the freed unit at Metro-Golden-Mare. It topped the AFI's greatest movie musicals list and is ranked as the fifth greatest American motion picture of all time in the American Film Institute's 2007 list. Also, Singing in the Rain places number 16 in the AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs list, and individual songs place high in AFI's 100 Years, 100 Songs list, including Singing in the Rain, number 3 on that list, Make em Laugh, number 49, and Good Morning, number 72. In 1989, Singin' in the Rain was one of the first 25 films selected by the United States Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. In 2005, the British Film Institute included Singin' in the Rain in its list of the 50 films to be seen by the age of 14. In 2008, Empire Magazine ranked it as the 8th best film ever made. In Sight & Sound Magazine's 2012 list of the 50 greatest films of all time, Singing in the Rain came in at 20th. And this picture earns a flawless 100% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, where its average critical score clocks in at 9.3 out of 10. Okay, so go grab your trusty umbrella and come with me now as we take a stroll down memory lane and revisit Singing in the Rain's original theatrical trailer.
2: And singing, just singing in
0: the rain Hold it, Dexter oh, Well, Mr. Simpson, we're really rolling Yeah,
2: well, you can stop rolling at once Huh? Don, Lena All right, everybody, save it Save it? Tell them to go home We're shutting down for a few weeks What? Well, don't just stand there, tell them everybody go home until further notice what is this yeah what's the matter all right the jazz singer that's what's the matter the jazz singer
0: oh
2: my darling little mammy, oh, mammy. now no, this is no joke cosmo it's a sensation the public is screaming for more more what talking pictures talking pictures oh it's just a freak yeah what a freak we should have such a freak at this studio i told you talking pictures were a menace but no one would listen to me don we're going to put our best feet forward we're going to make the dueling cavalier into a talking picture <laughs> Beautiful girl, you're a lovely picture. You were
0: meant for me. All I do is dream of you the whole night. There's ready for love I can jump over the moon up above There's a fiddle and ready for love I'm singing in the rain Just singing in the rain Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh Good morning Good morning We've talked the whole night through Good morning Good morning to you
1: assume that most of you have taken a gander to *Sing in the Rain in full or at least in part. But for those who have never gotten their feet wet with this picture, now is your opportunity to go see what all the fuss is about and finally view the movie. Because Alicia and I will be taking many scenic detours in that realm they call Spoilerland and we want you to be willing and informed participants on this journey. So do yourself a solid, go stream, rent, or buy the film, and give it a watch, for goodness sake. Those who ignore this advice risk the following reprimand from Lena Lamont.
2: And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. And I can't
0: stand him. Can't. Can't.
2: Can't. Y'all
1: got your trusty slicker and waterproof galoshes on? Then let's enjoy the downpour of affection for Singing in the Rain as we say hello to Alicia Malone. We're a lucky bunch here at Cineversary because this month we get to introduce one of the most well-known and admired guests we've ever had. It's none other than Turner Classic Movies host Alicia Malone, author of the books The Female Gaze, Essential Movies Made by Women, Backwards and in Heels, the past, present, and future of women working in film, and her newest work, released earlier this month, Girls on Film, Lessons from a Life of Watching Women and Movies. Alicia, we're thrilled to welcome you to our podcast. Thanks so much for agreeing to appear on Cineversary.
3: Thank you so much for having me. You've had such wonderful guests, so I feel like I'm in esteemed company.
1: Oh, my goodness. You're continuing a lucky tradition of fantastic guests. And, and again, we, we so appreciate you being here. And it's for a great movie, of course, a shared beloved film, Singing in the Rain, celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. So, Alicia, take us back to when and where you, you recall first seeing Singing in the Rain and tell us what you love about this film and why it's important to you. Well,
3: I don't remember exactly how old I was because it was one of the many classic films I watched when I was young, influenced by my dad who loved films and also my sisters who always watched classic films. And, you know, my dad just had so many VHS tapes filled with classic movies that he'd recorded from television.
0: Ah. And Singing
3: in the Rain was one of them, and it was on high rotation. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's always been part of my life. I've grown up with this film, and I still watch it probably once or twice a year whenever I need to pick me up but initially I was just so struck by the joy of the film I think even the title singing in the rain speaks to a joy of being alive and I was fascinated by watching Gene Kelly as many of us were his dance moves seemed otherworldly I also remember trying thinking looking at a wall and thinking, could I run up it like Donald O'Connor does (laughs) and make him laugh? We've
1: all had that thought, Alicia, you're not alone. (laughs)
3: Yeah, wisely, I I realized that that would probably end in tears and maybe a couple of broken bones. So I decided not to do that, but I would definitely be dancing around Mm -hmm. my living room. And even though I probably wouldn't have been able to articulate this at the time, looking back, I think it, it was part of a combination of movies that started to spark a real interest in Hollywood history because of the, the time period in which it shows of the the coming of sound to films. I think it just started to, to foster a, a curiosity in me about learning more about Hollywood history And here we are today, still doing the same thing.
1: Oh, fantastic. Yeah, you mentioned in your new book that you turned to comfort films like Singing in the Rain during the pandemic lockdown. So how many times do you think you've seen this movie in your lifetime, if you were to guess?
3: Oh, my gosh. I cannot even begin to estimate. It's so many times, and it's the kind of film that sometimes I'll just put on in the background, Mm. and it, it makes me feel, like you said, comforted. Yes. I think it has nostalgia for me on many different levels, one being just my own tendency to have a nostalgia for a past that I wasn't really a part of, mm-hmm. uh, looking at Hollywood history through rose-colored glasses and wanting to be part of that glamorous world of Hollywood as as is fantasized about in this movie. But also the fact that it takes me back to the times when I watched it as a kid, uh, that pure joy of watching films, that initial spark of love for classic films, it makes me feel safe in a way which is an interesting word to use but it definitely it makes me feel calm and happy and I think also just knowing the film so well I can quote the movie I can also quote all the bits in between that are quite funny to me like for example at the beginning of the movie when Zelda you know played by Rita Moreno arrives on the carpet and there's everyone screaming for zelda and there's this one guy that pops up and he's like zelda oh zelda <laughs> that always made me laugh as a kid it's something i continue to laugh at every time i see it so i think i can't estimate how many times i've seen it but mm. it's just a, a never-ending presence in my life right i'll even be on a plane and if it's offered um in the plane offerings i'll I'll put it on. It's just something that I cannot stop watching for whatever reason. Wow,
1: does TCM have their own airline? Because I've never been offered that on a jumbo jet. (laughs) That would be wonderful.
3: (laughs) I know. Well, Delta is doing better, I have to say, with their classic selection. It was pretty dire for Mm -hmm. a while, but now they've had several films and uh, Singing in the Rain at one point was on there. Oh,
1: what a treat that would be. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Alicia. So so why is this film worth celebrating 70 years later? Why does it still matter and how has it stood the test of time?
3: To me, I think it's because it is both a time capsule of a, a past of Hollywood that no longer exists. And also it's a celebration of the heyday of the studio era and mm. the, the MGM musical. It shows off all of the attributes that we love about these musicals and to their best abilities. This was the studio system working at its peak. Yes. You've got the stars, the dancing, the sets, the costumes, mm-hmm. so much to, to enjoy. But also it speaks a lot, like I say, to Hollywood history. It works as kind of a, a loving tribute to the silent film era. It doesn't make fun of silent films necessarily, and it shows the real struggle that happened in hollywood particularly with silent film actors when they had to make the transition to sound right so i think as well as being a very entertaining film Mm -hmm. uh, it's also one that tells some truths about hollywood history and how film had to evolve with the coming of sound uh you even get insights into the technical aspects of filming Uh, i i often speak to you know, the example of the the microphones and trying to capture Lena's sound mm-hmm. by hiding the microphone. I, I speak to that as an example when I'm trying to illustrate what a struggle it was to hide the microphones and then how Dorothy Asner came up with the idea for the boom microphone by putting a microphone on the end of a fishing rod mm. because it was so restrictive for actors at the time. Mm-hmm. So I find myself pointing to this film quite a lot as an example when I'm talking about Hollywood history and some of the technical aspects of filmmaking and so in that way I think it continues to be valuable particularly at a moment when we're speaking about the future of cinema what is it going to look like post-pandemic if we ever reach (laughs) post-pandemic how are things going to change are people ever going to come out of their houses to watch films in the same way I think this film speaks to the fact that Hollywood has always had to evolve with technology. Right. And as long as you can make them laugh, then you'll <laughs> be fine. <laughs> well put,
1: yes. If you were to ask me, uh, everything you said, of course, applies. But to me, it's the musical for people who don't like musicals. You know, it's mm. as far as a, a reference point or, or something you can refer to someone who, who may have an interest in classic movies, maybe on that periphery. It's one of those films for, you know, if if you recommend it to a male, for example. A lot of guys will say, I'm not really into musicals. But the truth is, they've all seen The Wizard of Oz. They've probably Mm -hmm. seen this movie, or at least snatches of it, right? When I say it's the musical for people who don't like musicals, perhaps that's because it checks the boxes across several musical subgenres. It's, of course, a jukebox musical Mm -hmm. in which most of the songs are popular tunes, not just original music, right? It's a backstage musical mm-hmm. wherein the plot is set in a theatrical context that focuses on a stage production or, in this case, a movie production. You can call it a catalog musical because it often features a catalog of songs from a single songwriting source. And here, that's yep. uh, that's MGM's Nachio Herb Brown and Arthur Freed. And Singing in the Rain is also an integrated musical as well, in which the music is used to advance or mesh with the narrative, and the characters don't just burst into song without reason. Mm -hmm. So I think it's also worth celebrating—tell me if you disagree in any way— but. I think it stands as the pinnacle of the classic Hollywood musical, the apex of works produced by, we mentioned, Arthur Freed at MGM. Yeah. And among that repertoire, you have The Wizard of Oz, Cabin in the Sky, Meet Me in St. Louis, Easter Parade, On the Town, An American in Paris, and, of course, The Bandwagon. And and then you think about who's in the movie. Well, it also represents a collection of top talents at the height of their powers. In particular, of course, Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, you think about the people behind the camera, Stanley Donen, and Arthur Freed, and, and these folks debatably have never produced better work. Mm-hmm. It's cherished as well, Alicia, I think because it, because of its chromatic vibrancy. It was shot in sumptuous three-strip technicolor. It really pops in so many different sequences in the film, particularly for me, the Broadway melody sequence and the beautiful girl montage. Oh, yeah. That's where you really see those primary colors come to life.
3: Yes, I completely agree. And that's one of the things I loved about it as a child was that it does have that fantasy Hollywood musical Mm. look with the sumptuous Technicolor. And you're right in that there's so much mastery involved in taking this catalogue of disparate songs and turning them into a cohesive storyline. Some of the numbers are, like you say, integrated and push the story forward and uh, develop the characters. Mm -hmm. Some, like Broadway Melody, sort of come out of nowhere in a, a fantasy sequence. But they all work so well, and I think it's true what you say with people not enjoying musicals, liking this film, because I know one of the major complaints from people who don't like musicals is the fact that it is so unrealistic that people suddenly burst into song to share their feelings. Mm -hmm. This film also makes fun of that at the same time, and the story in the film and the film itself seem to echo each other. Mm -hmm. How do we take these songs and make them into a musical? And then for the the story of the film, how do we make the Dueling Cavalier into a musical? How do we suddenly insert songs in there that make sense and also have modern dancers and things that speak to modern audiences and be a period piece? I think it, it manages to juggle all those elements so well. And it is because, as you say, you've got the best people working to their highest potential on this movie.
1: Totally. I think it also holds up because many of the songs and dancing, to me anyway, they seem spontaneous, improvised, natural, effortless, made up on the spot in some cases. Many of these songs serve as musical representations and articulations of a character's emotions, of course. A a case in Mm -hmm. point is the Moses Supposes song. That that scene (laughs) looks and feels a bit silly. Because Don and Cosmo apparently find the lessons ridiculous and can't take the teacher seriously, so they treat the scene and the instructor somewhat irreverently, right? While Broadway Rhythm, on the other hand, it plays as kinetic and urgent, suggesting that the need to dance is essential for practical as well as personal reasons. Mm-hmm. So you've got a lot of infectious energy, enthusiasm, playfulness that pulses through these numbers. And... I can't speak for you, but for me, I can't. I just can't help but tap my toes, hum along, share many of the emotions felt by these characters. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate the feeling of genuinely falling in love because Kelly sells it so well during the the titular dance sequence. That when he's stomping around in the rain, I've had that feeling before. I mm-hmm. might I might not have done a little rain dance after walking a girl home or something like that, but I felt that feeling, and I can relate.
3: Absolutely, it's impossible not to smile. While watching Gene Kelly play in puddles like a kid, and his dancing and his choreography, the one of the reasons that I've always loved him is that he has such a playfulness to it. Like yes. you said, there's times when it feels improvised, but he genuinely looks like he's having fun. He's ha- having a blast dancing, and you feel that it's infectious. It comes through the screen. Completely. And you know, then I always, even just when I rewatch the film. A couple of weeks ago, I watched the film, and then I found myself trying to tap dance around my house and realizing I have no talent for tap dancing. Well, i got to give
1: you credit. I would never uh, attempt that, but I can always uh, fantasize. (laughs) uh, Yeah, no, he sure makes it look easy, does he not?
3: Exactly. He brings such an ease to it, and of course, he was incredibly innovative in what he did with, with dance on screen.
1: Yes, and I love what you were saying about how Singing in the Rain serves as a kind of a minor history lesson, if you will, and how... Early movies were made, loosely documenting the problematic transition from silence to talkies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It demonstrates how the machinery of movie making pulls off the magic trick, how microphones, lights, cameras, backdrops, and other elements function to help create a film. Mm-hmm. And because it was set in 1927, that, that very pivotal year when the first talking movies were released, it serves as a compelling period piece that helps Singing in the Rain from maybe feeling outmoded or outdated. It, it feels very anchored as a period piece, and they can have fun with that, as you were talking about, too. So you consider that the movie business continually confronts times of change and challenging periods of technical transition back in the fifties, it was the rollout of 3d and widescreen, mm-hmm. you know, in more modern times, it's the initiative to install digital projection systems and compete with streaming and all these other things. And so, like you said, Hollywood and the entertainment business is always going to go through some times of change. So that's another way in which this movie and its message can stay evergreen and, and fresh.
3: Yes. I completely feel that it, um, it shows the persistence of Hollywood, and the way in which we we love Hollywood, why we turn to Hollywood films is because it is all an illusion, it's all a fantasy. Right. There are all these machinations happening behind the scenes to make us believe what we're seeing on screen is true, but at the end of the day, we just wanna laugh, we wanna uh, dance, we wanna experience love, and we get to do that through movies. I love also the way that this film is quite specific in showing the technical aspects of, of filmmaking. Um, you think about, like I said, the, the microphone scene, yes. but even that they explain how that you go into the sound, the microphone and it goes into the wire and that's recorded onto a record. And that was the way sound was done in early sound films. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the idea of ghost singers, when we have Kathy Seldon filling in Felina's voice, uh, makes you think of someone like Marnie Nixon, who was never seen on screen, she was an incredible singer. But her voice was heard on screen in Ah, My Fair Lady and West Side Story and The King and I. She was dubbing for these famous stars who got all the credit for their acting and their their singing and dancing. And it was really it was her behind the scenes singing. So film has always been an illusion and presented that to audiences. And I think that's why we love films as we get to enter into this dreamlike world.
2: Yeah,
1: you think about a character like Kathy who kind of represents those poor souls who languished in obscurity without credit uh, often, Mm -hmm. kind of work behind the scenes, as you said, as ghost singers and and elsewhere. So yeah, this again, it serves as a really great early Hollywood kind of history lesson in some ways and and a practical lesson too, like you were talking about in terms of some of the uh, technical issues that they had to deal with. But I also liked how you were talking about, you've noticed something new. It seems like uh, maybe every time you see the movie or every few times... I noticed on this recent rewatch, just I really paid more attention to some of the comedic lines, which it's mm-hmm. e- it's easy to just primarily think of Singing in the Rain* as a stellar dancing and memorable music movie, but it's loaded with great you know comedic zingers and lines. I love the the first one that pops out is "She's so refined, I think I'll kill myself," which <laughs> it still works today. It's just it's a great singer. and. Of course, dignity always, dignity. Yeah,
0: always uh, dignity. Call me a
1: cab. Okay, you're a cab.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I laughed out loud when Lena just says, "Gee, this is dumb." Said,
0: yeah, her delivery
1: is great. I mean, it's just it's not just the the way the lines are written, but often it's the delivery and the performance. And that exchange between Cosmo and RF, where he's talking, he says, "Talking pictures, that means I'm out of a job. At last, I can start suffering and write that symphony." (laughs) And then RF says, "You're not out of a job. We're putting you in as head of our new music department." And then Cosmo says, "Oh, thanks, RF. At last, I can stop suffering and write that symphony." (laughs) Good. It's good stuff. It's more than just you know singing and dancing.
3: Absolutely. There's some great script writing there.
0: No question.
3: By uh, Betty Comden and Adolph Green and of course number one they had to figure out how to write a story to go in between these songs and realizing that their potential would be best if they set the film during the time in which these songs were created so the late 1920s and how do they do that and what they focus on but also just the writing Mm -hmm. itself like you said there's so many comedic lines there's also so many quotable lines i'll always say to my friend I can't stand him and I can't
0: <laughs> stand him. I can't
3: stand him. And I joke about that with, you know, when I started on TCM, there were mm-hmm. uh, quite a few people who didn't like my Australian accent. And, um, I would always try and say round tones, round tones to myself,
1: infinitely quotable, (laughs)
3: try to get myself out of that nasality of, uh, the Australian accent.
1: Oh, don't you lose Alicia, do not lose that Australian accent. It is delightful. No,
3: I don't think I could if I tried, (laughs) I mean, I've, I've, I've tried and I cannot lose this accent and I've gone to coaches like the Mm. diction coaches that you see. Um, so there are so many quotable lines and I think you're right. It's, It's got the the song and the dance, but also the great
1: script and the story. The story is compelling. It makes a big, big difference, of course. So let's pivot now and talk about how Singing in the Rain was innovative or different, especially compared to previous Hollywood musicals. So let's do a little compare and contrast. When you think about classic Hollywood musicals before Singing in the Rain, how was this somewhat different?
3: Well, one thing that I I noticed with this film is that some of the dance sequences Mm -hmm and songs and dances seem to be performed for the audience and not necessarily for the other characters. Ah. So you certainly certainly have songs, uh, where they're singing to each other mm. and it's conveying an emotion right. or you have songs like singing in the rain where Don is in his own world and just experiencing his own joy. But if you think about make him laugh, It starts out as being a song to Don to try to lift his spirits after he's been humbled by Kathy about his profession. Mm -hmm. But then it moves and and suddenly it's just Cosmo performing it to us, to the audience, and uh, Don isn't even around. And and so I think that's really interesting. I don't really have the research to compare, you know, how much or little that happened before Singing in the Rain, Uh but it's just something that stands out to me that several times they – do play to the film audience and you feel like you are part of the story or you're being told something instructive, like make them laugh, you know, entertainment isn't clowning worthwhile, you know, popular entertainment is mm-hmm. is still worth going to and still worth seeing. It's not just about the high entertainment of, of the theater, but uh, just songs and dances and making you laugh has a place it seems like they're trying to communicate something to the audience at the time. And maybe it is because the 1950s, they were worried about television. They had to kind of show that it's still, hmm. it's, Hey audiences, it's still worth seeing films on a big screen.
1: No, hey, that's a great take and one that I didn't think of before. Mm. So, yeah, I really like where you're going with that. And it makes me think about it a little bit differently now yeah. in terms of, yeah, dancing or singing to the audience. I was really intrigued in trying to find answers to this question about how this movie was perhaps different from predecessors. Mm. So here are some things I kind of unearthed. Singing in the Rain apparently did integrate different types of dancing. You have tap, you have ballet, ballroom, jazz, can-can. And, of course, a more athletic style of hoofing and movement that, for instance, maybe breakdance and hip-hop dancers can appreciate nowadays. At least that's kind of what I learned watching some of the bonus features and and reading some things online. Mm. Singing in the Rain also showcases some of the best male tandem dancing ever, in my opinion, as well as three-person dancing with Debbie Reynolds included you know Kelly O'Connor Reynolds they make it look easy we've talked about this even though it was very challenging work you hear about the uh, the behind the scenes stories of how her feet were bleeding and oh, yes. bursting blood vessels and Kelly being a taskmaster who was really difficult to work with but yeah choreographing executing these dance moves extremely challenging Amazingly, Reynolds, I didn't know this, but she had no professional dancing experience before being cast, although she was a skilled gymnast. Mm -hmm. It was also her first starring role in a musical. So what pressure? I mean, I I can only imagine being in her shoes what that must have been like. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, rare for a 1950s musical, most music in the film is recycled. We were talking a bit about this. Uh, all but two of the 15 songs, in which case uh, we're talking about Moses, Supposes, and Make him Laugh, were used previously in movies, mostly between 1929 and 1939. That's kind of interesting mm. because the music came first, then the story, then the screenplay. The musical actually has a solid plot with an intriguing narrative as opposed to so many previous song and dance pictures. And the story was written directly for the screen. It wasn't based on a stage musical. So these are some ways in which Singing in the Rain was a little bit different.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I do feel like Singing in the Rain is a culmination of things that had been done before, but it does them so well. Mm. Um, You know, in previous musicals, they had reused certain standards, some popular songs make an appearance in multiple musicals. Uh, An American in Paris was another one that was based first on the pieces of music, but that was a George Gershwin tone poem, so it was a little bit different. Right. Um, and here, that, that, that's where the idea sort of germinated. And then here, Arthur Freed thought, hey, we could do this with with my song catalog, <laughs> with Nacho her Brown, and we could try to make that work. Yes. Um, and in the past, there'd been musicals where, say, um, on Moonlight Bay, with the Doris Day film that was, the title came just from Jack Warner, supposedly, opening up a song catalogue and pointing at random to a song and then saying, okay, make a film called this. Now go and write that film called On Moonlight Bay Mm. and also have that song involved in the film. But Singing in the Rain definitely feels different to a lot of those because of the way in which it, it just did it so effortlessly that it doesn't feel like it was trying to squeeze songs artificially into the plot that the plot just naturally works around the films and maybe it is as you say because the songs came first and then they had to just figure out the the um, writing in between and it's also interesting that make him laugh is exactly be a clown from the pirate I mean it's the same song (laughs) as Cole Porter's song Um, but uh, yeah a
1: little lifting there no question yeah because
3: Gene Kelly apparently said I want a song like be a clown. So then Mm -hmm. they just came up with make them laugh, which is exactly the same.
1: (laughs) I guess as they say, steal from the best.
3: Yeah. But there's certainly a lot of special effects that uh, I think still look great for a 1950s film. Uh, You think about Broadway melody and, and the end of that song, how Don floats towards the camera and you can tell there was a bit of blue screen or something happening behind him, but it was done really well in a way that is quite rare for Hollywood musicals at that time.
1: Yeah, and and this is a musical that actually tells a story, as we've Mm -hmm. been discussing. It depicts Hollywood's challenging crossover from Silence to Talkies. And we, we learn how the sausage is made, the placement of the microphones, the lip syncing, synchronizing the picture and sound. You have a traveling cyclorama, I guess is what you call it, in the background. The importance of test screenings, Mm. stiff competition between the studios, and the degree to which Hollywood actors were commodities owned by the studio. Recall, for example, that Kathy is obligated to perform because of her contract with Monumental Pictures. So again, how the sausage is made. And we mentioned Janine Basinger earlier. I want to quote her from her book, The Movie Musical. She said, It's a film about film history. And its musical numbers comply. Make em Laugh with Donald O'Connor doing an amazing tour de force of slapstick dancing is about the violence of American silent comedy. Mm-hmm. Moses supposes this is like a Marx Brothers routine set to music. You Were Meant for Me is a gentle self-parody of typical love duets in movies, showing all the props used and how audiences are manipulated by them. Beautiful Girl is a tribute to a 1930s Busby Berkeley number, and Good Morning uses an old song as a setting for an imaginatively choreographed tap routine that displays several different types of movie dancing. All the numbers are about movies except All I Do is Dream of You and the title tune. I found that kind of interesting and a good mm. excerpt to kind of quote. I love here. that. Yeah. Yeah. And then lastly, as an interesting point here, consider how Singing in the Rain stands as an uncommon example in this era of a metafilm. Hmm. Kind of a movie within a movie that comments on the creation, editing, and distribution of motion pictures. Exhibit A is, you know, this film is chock full of references and nods to previous movies and filmmakers. And savvy watchers can have a lot of fun looking for the breadcrumbs. Like we said, the majority of tunes had been featured in previous Hollywood musicals. In fact, this was the seventh time the song Singing in the Rain was used in a film, mm-hmm. I found out. You said, make em laugh, riffs on a Cole Porter song, be a clown from 1948's The Pirate. There's a movie nod. Uh, The movie uses plenty of antique props and older sets employed in earlier films, like Kathy's Jalopy being a fixture in the Andy Hardy series with Mickey Rooney. Mm -hmm. R.F. Simpson, the studio boss, and the musical director character of Cosmo were kind of loosely modeled on Arthur Freed himself. The Dancing Cavalier director, Roscoe Dexter, is patterned after musical filmmaker Busby Berkeley. The film mentions 1927's The Jazz Singer, credited as the first feature-length talking picture. And the action scenes in The Royal Rascal, well, they use footage from the 1948 film The Three Musketeers. So there's lots of different examples of nods to movies and it being a film. Exhibit B is that, of course, Seen in the Rain lampoons and lionizes Hollywood and show business, hinting at the warts and all truth behind filmmaking with comedic criticism, while also, of course, glorifying the glitz and the glamour and the glory days of the studio system and early popular entertainment. And Exhibit C is that there's even a meta-irony in this film because we see how Lena's voice is dubbed by Kathy, who is the better singer, but Debbie Reynolds' singing voice is actually dubbed mm-hmm. by a, a singer named Betty Noyes, if I'm pronouncing her correctly, in two songs, Would You and in part of You Are My Lucky Star. Now, that's meta, Alicia. Mm-hmm. Very
3: <laughs> so. much so. Yeah, I think uh, that speaks to so many reasons why I loved this film from a kid and then as my growing interest in film history started to explode. I mean, Mm. just getting to make those connections was so worthwhile to me. Funnily enough, when I saw it as a kid, I didn't understand the concept of a period film, so I really thought that it was a film set around the 1920s when this was happening. I didn't understand that it was a 50s film looking back. But as I grew up and I started to encounter a lot of the the examples used in the film like the jazz singer I was able to again sort of harken back to the movie and say oh yes that's right they explained that in singing in the rain as being the first talky picture that really was popular and started the trend towards talking pictures mm-hmm. there's so much in here variety articles that pop up show the importance of the, the trade magazines at the time. Right. You have the, the people thinking that sound films were just a fad and that's very much what many people in Hollywood were thinking, that sound was not going to be part of motion pictures. It was just a temporary trend like 3D ended up being in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's so much packed in here. And that's why it's always a worthwhile experience, as I say, to learn something or see something different every time I watch it, because my own knowledge of film history grows and I can, I can make those connections. And that's always so much fun. That's another reason I love Bad and the Beautiful, you know, or movies about movies, Yes, is because it, it's fun to play the guessing game of who these characters might be based on.
1: And you had a lot of that metacriticism going on in the early 50s with, you mentioned, Bad and the Beautiful, of course, Sunset, uh, Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard, exactly. All so about I'm Eve to some yes. extent. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So there was something in the ether at that time. So let's talk briefly about ways in which Singing in the Rain was influential on cinema, comedy, or popular culture. Of course, we can point to things like influences or things that may have sprung up in the wake of Singing in the Rain in modern times, You think of films and TV shows like Moulin Rouge or High School Musical and its sequels, the musical Chicago, The Artist, which won the Best Picture Oscar 11 years ago, Rock of Ages, La La Land, which suddenly sprung up in the past few years and reinvigorated the uh, classic Hollywood musical for a new generation, and the TV show Glee. So these are some obvious things that spring to mind. Are there any others that you can think of that uh, maybe you personally enjoyed or were a fan of?
3: Well, I mean, I think it's it's just influenced so much in popular culture that it's almost hard to pinpoint things, ways in which it hasn't infiltrated, particularly the way it, that dance um, is shown on screen. Um, One that comes to mind just because of the fact that we have her as a special guest at the TCM Film Festival. Uh, Paula Abdul is going to be there to introduce Singing in the Rain. Oh, terrific. And she was so inspired by Gene Kelly. And I remember Uh seeing her video for Opposites Attract where she dances with the cartoon character much like... Gene Kelly did in Anchors Away with Tom and Jerry. Right. And uh, she also had that Coke commercial, Diet Coke commercial, where she danced with Gene Kelly again. I
1: remember that. Yeah. I think <laughs> on, on
3: the town or, yeah, maybe on the town or, or Anchors Away. And also, Carrie Grant appears in that Coke commercial. So she's obviously very inspired by classic Hollywood. Mm-hmm but I think it it inspired so many dancers and and artists. And it's one of the movies that I love showing younger people because everyone knows the example of uh, Gene Kelly dancing in the rain, even if you haven't seen the film, you know that reference. And it's so much fun to show someone who has never seen the film before and get to experience that through their eyes where they they note all of the ways in which this has been copied of course yeah the artist like you mentioned very much has that same storyline la la land i was excited when i saw la la land that not only you have that big fantasy sequence towards the end that's exactly like broadway melody right. but you also have smaller moments like Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone walk, walking through the studio a lot with lots happening behind them. And that is the same as, you know, Don and Cosmo walking through the lot and going past all of these different sets. No question. Or there's a moment, tiny moment where Ryan Gosling spins around a lamppost. And so you, you can't help but think about Gene Kelly Of
0: course. In
3: in those moments. So I think it's influenced so much that it's so hard to define exactly where it's influence starts and stops.
1: Uh-huh, totally. Singing in the Rain showed how efficiently and effectively you could advance the narrative, too, through dance and music. You ponder how most, if not all, of the songs follow logically from a character's motivation or a previous explanation, Alicia. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Take the Fit and Fiddle number, which establishes Don's past and professional relationship with Cosmo, and you consider why the title song comes later in in the story, arguably because it occurs just after Don realizes he's in love, serving as a jubilant expression of his sentiments toward Kathy, And the joie de vivre he's experiencing. So they sing the title song at the opening credits, but it really hits its stride when when they come back to it later. And that is the perfect timing for that song. Mm. So again, just how the movie effectively and efficiently advances the narrative through music and dance. I'm not saying it's the first to do that, but I think it it really demonstrates a, a mastery of that kind of craftsmanship. Yeah. And particularly with this movie, Kelly, from what I learned, he perfected a new approach to presenting dance on film. According Mm -hmm. to Kelly himself, he had said that I tried to do things uniquely cinematic that you couldn't do on a stage. Mm -hmm. Call it cine dancing or whatever, but I tried to invent the dance to fit the camera and its movements. And I think you totally see that uh, throughout Singing in the Rain, and that's part of what separates it from so many other musicals as perhaps the greatest of all time. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the make 'em laugh number. This movie boasts perhaps the best and one of the first examples of physical comedy implemented in a dance number with that song. And then just going back to the beautiful girl montage... For me, anyway, especially in the first 60 seconds or so, it kind of serves as a, a proto-music video with its colorfully costumed women, the stylistic shots of marching female soldiers, that man shouting out of the megaphone. You have these various beauties clad in ostentatious attire. It feels like a kind of early MTV video with its rapid cuts and eye-catching visuals. It could be a little bit of a stretch of a thought, but it just made me think of like those early MTV
0: videos.
3: Yeah, and as you're speaking, I'm thinking about the way in which some of these songs like Fit There's a Fiddle, as you mentioned, uh-huh. the meaning of it, or the, the pace or the, the style of music, whatever language is appropriate to use, changes throughout that song. So, you know, That's it true. starts to, and same with Beautiful Girls, I think it is, where it can be shown in, in so many different ways that the same song can be a, a vaudeville type number, or it can be a more sophisticated number. And I like how, say that Fit as a Fiddle sequence shows uh, an evolution of Don and Cosmo and their friendship and how they changed as performers through that song and I know it's been noted before that Gene Kelly had a real reverence for dance and so he never laughs at dance so even though that scene with fit as a fiddle you know they start out in the the vaudeville clubs um it's, it's still, the dance is amazing. So even though it's played for comedic effect, same with Make Them Laugh.
0: Oh,
1: goodness. It's
3: still so impressive with what they're able to do with their bodies. Yes,
1: yeah, so acrobatic. Yeah,
3: you're never laughing at their ability or, or mm-hmm. the, the ridiculousness of dancing itself, but it's more the, the situation that is funny.
1: Absolutely, so athletic and, and acrobatic. Mm. Make Them Laugh is a tour de force of physical comedy and sheer acrobatics, of course, but yeah. That fit as a fiddle. It it really oh drives home the point that these guys were in tip top shape, of course, but also just the prime of their careers uh, in mm. terms of performers and entertainers. Yeah,
3: Kelly was thirty nine at the time, and I'm forty, and I feel like <laughs> how was he able to do? Such athletic things in his body. This is what
1: separates the greats from <laughs> the wannabes. There's a reason why LeBron James is still playing at the peak of his powers, and he's toward the end of his 30s. So.
3: Yes. And I, I love, I also don't know the technical words for various dance moves, but in Fit as a Fiddle, I mean, and and I say Donald O'Connor is right up there with Gene Kelly, not quite, of course, as uh, incredible a dancer as him, but he's really impressive. Mm. and fits Gene Kelly in a way that many other co-stars struggle to do yes. to be on his level. But there's a moment where they're doing fit as a fiddle and they're dancing around each other while kicking their feet yes. out to the side. Mm-hmm. I would love to oh learn how to goodness. do that because that looks so much My fun.
1: knees are aching just thinking about that position. <laughs> I
3: know. I think I could do one circle and I'd be like, <gasps>
1: more than me. Okay.
3: <laughs> we need to take a break. Yes. <laughs>
1: All right, so quickly, I want to briefly touch on how it's rare for any classic film from the golden age of Hollywood to have two directors, right? I mean, why Mm. did both Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly direct this movie, and and how and why were they the ideal collaborators?
3: Yeah, they worked so well together. Of course, they had a very complicated relationship, which virtually ended after their third and final film together. Mm. But they started out directing musical sequences and then made their directorial debut, both of them with On the Town, and then their second film was Singing in the Rain, their third was It's Always Fair Weather, and then Stanley Donnan had done some solo stuff in between, Mm -hmm. but Gene Kelly didn't start directing solo until after It's Always Fair Weather. But I think they worked so well together because they were both performers, because Stanley Donnan was also... a a dancer himself, so he had an understanding and the same kind of reverence for dance as Gene Kelly did. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's a lot of debate about who did what, how their collaboration worked exactly. Both of them said repeatedly that they had worked together on everything, everything together. So, you know, conventional thinking would say, well, Stanley Donnan must have directed all the, the dialogue sequences and the acting and Gene Kelly must have directed all of the musical scenes, but they both said that they worked on everything together. Whether you believe that to be true, you know, is another matter, but mm. I think the fact that they were both performers lent to it, focus on bringing out the best of dance and the best of musical. And so it it really worked, especially in this case, like you said before, the, the fact that Gene Kelly wanted to keep pushing himself to rediscover new ways to show dance on screen hmm. and use the camera in a way that dances along with the performers and isn't just completely static or doing the the awful thing that some musicals did, which was cut to a close-up when you want to see the full body. You want to see Gene Kelly's feet dancing at the same time right. as his upper half of his body. Uh, so I think they, they work together so well in that way that they both, wanted to show dance and musicals off to the, the best of their abilities. Um, but, it, yeah, it was rare to have these kind of co-directors. Yes. And then ultimately it, it didn't work out in the end, but very grateful for the three films that they gave us.
1: Well, obviously, it proved to be the right decision because all that matters is the final output, and it's genius stuff. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, if maybe they didn't share directing duties, maybe it would have been a lesser film in some way. So I guess we'll never know. But all that matters is Singing in the Rain is a masterpiece. And uh, if it took the combined talents, even with their egos intact, Mm -hmm. then that's what it took.
3: Yeah, exactly. You mentioned, you know, poor Debbie Reynolds and everything she went through mm-hmm. with her feet bleeding for the good morning scene. Uh, but I think it speaks to her ability to just keep going. Like she always yes. showed throughout her whole life that she, the show must go on. That was her mentality from the very beginning to the end. Yes, And um, it sounds like Gene Kelly was a complete perfectionist and difficult to work with both for directors and for other performers and choreographers. But uh, at the end of the day, like you said, the output really is remarkable. And I know Debbie Reynolds has said that she was grateful for being able to get to that level with her dancing, even though it took a lot of pain to get there. Yeah,
1: I'm sure she's extremely proud of her work in the movie. And That speaks to her diligence. I want to talk briefly about themes, messages, or morals, if there are any Mm. that you can identify in Singing in the Rain. Now, this isn't Citizen Kane in the the sense of a deep subtextual movie, (laughs) chock full of different uh, meanings and messages, perhaps. But I think there's a couple that we can focus on. What would you say?
3: Yeah, and there's several that speak to me. Um, One aspect of the film that I've always loved is the friendship between Don and Cosmo, Mm -hmm. how they're best friends and long-time friends. And unlike many Hollywood friendships that we see in movies like The Bad and The Beautiful, it's a non-competitive and non-nasty kind of friendship. They're always supportive of each other. There's the great romance as well. Um, But something that I notice more acutely Lately, because I was thinking about this theme for my new book, um, is about the facade of Hollywood. Sure. And um, that's something I noticed when I moved to L.A., you know, I was very caught up in just the surface idea of Hollywood and trying to pick out landmarks and people and things that were familiar from films I'd seen. And then towards the end of my time living in L.A., I felt like it was much more of a, a facade and I was playing a part in the facade uh, by okay. creating a sort of persona mm-hmm. but this really has a has a value to the facade that everything is an illusion even say kathy revoicing lena's words uh but it's all done for the the surface of of uh, an audience of of entertainment and and how that is worthwhile in the end i mean there's so much when you see like we we're talking about the scene where don and cosmo walk past all the different sets that are happening and you realize how during the silent era because they didn't have to worry about sound you could have these sets really close together and you see how one backlot can change into various different scenarios exactly with, and and like uh, you were meant for me and as janine basinger pointed out in the quote that you read that that song is helped along by the props and and they show how Mm -hmm. movie making creates this kind of uh, romantic mood and something that we're used to seeing on screen and it also shows in the way that Don is really popular with the silent film and with the musical that realism sort of had no place for him in, in Hollywood that when he was trying to be serious and act with sound it became hilarious to audiences. He wasn't <laughs> able to convey the same emotion, right. but both silent films and musicals require a level of fantasy and a level of disbelief that the audience has to somehow get over the fact that people are singing their emotions mm. in musicals and yes. and silent films were so emotive that there was that level of uh, the dreamlike level of non-realism to them. Mm-hmm. And that's also present in this movie I always love the MGM musicals that are shot on the MGM backlot pretending to be somewhere else, like An American in Paris, because it is such a Hollywood version of Paris, but it is the fantasy version, a dreamlike version, Mm -hmm. and here it's the Hollywood version of Hollywood.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's meta, absolutely. And then Mm. that key theme is so important, illusion versus reality. I think another one is dignity versus humiliation. Mm, because yes. time and again, we're shown how Don, Cosmo, Kathy, and Lena try to maintain their self-respect and their poise in this dog-eat-dog world of Hollywood, but they're regularly shamed and demeaned and embarrassed to the point of, you know, pies in the face, if you will. <laughs> so that's, of course, one that stands out. And another is performing and performances, mm. because singing in the rain continually reminds us of the pressure felt by artists to impress and entertain audiences, to nail the opportunity, and to perform well in front of and behind the camera. Mm -hmm. Those are some different themes to chew on.
3: Yeah, I definitely think that, yeah, hubris of humility is a big Mm -hmm. message in it, because when Don and Kathy first meet, she humbles him, uh, by pretending that she doesn't watch movies. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. (laughs) Um, And then also uh, Lena you know she could do with a lot of humility and she ends up getting that at the end but she her ego is out of control. Totally. So I think definitely that that's a a theme that's very present in Singing in the Rain.
1: This is a 70th birthday celebration and it's customary to give wrapped goodies on birthdays
0: <laughs> except
1: it's the fans who continue to get the gifts. Mm. So Alicia, what is Singing in the Rain's greatest gift to viewers?
3: Oh, I think it is just the comfort that we were speaking about before and the sheer joy just the idea of singing in the rain. You know, the rain is something that we think of as being a great discomfort. We don't wanna get wet. We wanna run out of the rain. We wanna stay inside. And to see Gene Kelly dancing in the rain just speaks to how we can be present and, and have a real, find joy in our life, no matter what discomfort it throws our way. But throughout the pandemic, I definitely heard from many TCM viewers who were like me and turned to this film as a way to comfort themselves through great tragedy and uncertainty in the world. And I think that is a way in which it is a very precious gift that continues to give to audiences because that's so valuable to have a piece of entertainment that you can turn to and just escape your own life for a minute, step into the fantasy, smile and laugh and Mm. and think about better times when you watch the film. So that would is what I would say is the greatest gift.
1: Yeah, so true and well said. I believe this movie has three greatest gifts. It's hard to decide which one's better or more treasured than the others. The first is, for me, fittingly enough, the title track, Dance and the Downpour by Gene Kelly, Mm -hmm. which is easily the most memorable music and visual from the film. It's one that transcends time. It's referenced in pop culture to this day. And not only is this a logistical and technical triumph of mise-en-scene, But Kelly's emotionally animated footwork and physical exuberance are unforgettable. Mm -hmm. We've certainly seen him do maybe more athletically impressive movements to music. This may not be his most complex choreography ever. Yet it's the most believable dancing I've ever seen from Gene Kelly because it feels and looks like the way a young man might behave upon first realizing that he's smitten with someone. We may not be able to tap tirelessly and flawlessly across the wet pavement like Mr. Kelly, but we can relate to the sheer joy that electrifies his legs and gives his feet wings. Mm -hmm. We can recall times in our youth when we stomped around giddily in rain puddles and twirled an umbrella, right? You simply can't help but grin by the song's end and feel young again. That's what I believe. Mm -hmm. And I'm occasionally reminded, Alicia, of the power and lasting influence of this number, when I visit the produce section of my local supermarket. So every so often while perusing the rows of carrots, radishes, kale, and spinach, I'm startled by the sudden operation of an automatic overhead irrigation system (laughs) in the supermarket that will play the disembodied voice of Gene Kelly singing this song as the (laughs) veggies are delicately misted. And it's little wonder why my produce is so crisp, fresh, (laughs) and tasty. After all, it's a Hollywood icon that has serenaded them, so... I contend that this song is Kelly's best vocal performance among all Mm. his films as well. Uh, Great singing. Greatest gift number two is, of course, Make Him Laugh. It never fails to deliver on that title's promise. Donald O'Connor is a sheer force of nature with his funny business here. His pliant, slapsticky, superhuman performance speaks for itself. This was the film, Alicia... And this was the scene that got my son to sit down for and pay attention to classic films mm-hmm. back when he was five years old and a thousand other Disney flicks were vying for his attention. So he just loved to make him laugh. He just kept repeating it over and over and over. And greatest gift number three is the Broadway melody sequence for me. Mm. It's an uber-colorful medley of fanciful fantasy that blends several discrete dancing and musical styles. And it doesn't exist in the character's reality. Don recommends inserting it as a showstopper within uh, you know, the re-edit of The Dancing Cavalier. Narratively, however, it functions as a crucial turning point in Don's ability to reveal his emotions to Kathy. And it externalizes his internal crisis about his acting skills— keeping pace with his dancing aptitude and vice versa. So one reading suggests that the Broadway melody fantasy is a reaction in Don's mind to Kathy's criticism of his acting and how Don had compromised himself by not pursuing his true talent, dancing, mm-hmm. and how he should return to it. But regardless of your interpretation of it, you just think about the garish Hughes, the uh, the elaborate steps, the balletic brilliance, nimble camera movement. Is it sureing? Yeah, I mean... The the sheer number of moving parts in Broadway Melody are stunning, making it a kind of self-contained masterpiece within a masterpiece. Mm. So I could go on forever about greatest gifts. There are more than this. But those are the three that totally stand out. It's the gift that keeps on giving, this movie. I
3: agree. I'll just add one more, and that's, of course, Debbie Reynolds. You know, this being her debut at, at 19 years old, I mean, she showed her prowess for for acting and dancing and singing and she is also a gift that keeps giving with her all her performances i got to i got to speak to her really briefly once i was at the telluride film festival and i was sitting there and and uh someone was talking to debbie reynolds on the phone and they said hey do you want to speak to her and i was like okay all i could say was i love you
0: and <laughs> she was like
3: thank you darling and then she was like can you put me back on the phone yeah i was like okay thanks bye
0: (laughs) (laughs) well
1: you got the point across that's the important thing right well tell us more about your new book girls on film including what it's about and why you wrote it alicia
3: yeah this is my third book and i wanted to challenge myself this time around by adding more of my own personal story It's something i get asked about Mm. all the time people say how did you get into classic films why do you love them? And it's something that I started questioning myself as we got into the pandemic. And I was turning to movies like Singing in the Rain. I started to think about how have classic films helped me throughout my life, how have they inspired me, and particularly women in them. What messages have I taken, good and bad, about women throughout my life? So I decided to write more of my personal tale. And it's not a complete memoir because it it doesn't Encapsulate my whole life, but it looks at snapshots throughout my life and through the prism of the films that I was watching at the time mm-hmm. and the women who were in them. So I'm trying to combine memoir, essay with a uh, bit of film history and a bit of film analysis. And as always, I try to write very simply and very accessibly so that people who are not classic film aficionados can hopefully pick up the book and. Uh, you know, read about Gentleman Fur Blonde, say, and decide to go and watch it. That's always been my mission in life is how to get more people watching classic films.
1: It's a very effective read. I can personally vouch for it, folks. It's a it's a great pickup. It's totally accessible. Like you said, it's it's straightforward. It's from the heart. It feels very personal. And I think that you, you come across as a relatable. And just as a fellow film fan, mm. and that's what I really love about it, mm-hmm. all the different nods to various movies that influenced you, made an impression on you, you know, different personal stories that you relate throughout your career and coming up through the ranks, so to speak. And you really lay it all out there for people. So I, I highly recommend it. It was a real fun read.
3: Thank you. I appreciate that. And as I say in the book, when I first joined TCM, I was so overwhelmed by the idea of continuing the incredible legacy that Robert Osborne left behind mm. that I started thinking, okay, I'm not good enough for this. But then I realized that passion and joy was were the two things that he really communicated about classic films and right. made it so infectious and made everyone want to join him in watching mm-hmm. classic films. So that's something I try to keep in mind as I write a book like this is like, how can I communicate that passion and joy in a really relatable way so that people can identify with me.
1: If in doubt, always focus on the movies and the love for them.
3: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Is there
1: anything else you're working on that listeners should check out? Are there any uh for example, festivals coming up or things on TCM that we should keep our radars peeled for?
3: Well, really the the film festival is the big one and that is exciting because it has been, you know, two or almost 3 years since the last TCM film festival was allowed to take place in person. So I'm just so looking forward to seeing everyone again and uh, getting to be around the viewers. This is the 21st to the 24th of April. Gotcha. That's in Hollywood. So it takes place at various theatres around Hollywood. And I hope to see some of you at the film festival this year. We will be playing Singing in the Rain, so I, I'm sure I'll, I'll have to watch it again because how can you pass up an opportunity to see it on the big screen uh, but I'm really looking forward to that. And that's always really fun. We're also playing A Star is Born, the 1937 version. And it's always fun when you get to watch a film like Singing in the Rain in the Chinese theater, which, you know, with the scenes taking place outside of the Chinese theater at the start of the movie. Yeah,
1: how fun is that's that? That's again,
3: another very meta way. So that's the the main thing I'm working on right now. And I'm so excited about it.
1: Lots of uh, exciting things to look forward to for listeners, viewers, and fans. Mm -hmm. Well, Alicia, thanks again for taking a deep dive with us into one of the greatest, if not the finest, film musical of them all, Singing in the Rain, 70 years. That's quite a milestone. I hope I make it that long. (laughs) I'm sure this movie has legs and will continue to be appreciated by future generations. Do you have that hope as well?
3: Yeah, I think it's a timeless movie that will continue to be rediscovered as the years go on and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this film at length because like you i could speak about it all day
1: oh we can go on for ages but we'll leave it at that alicia again our great appreciation for appearing on ciniversary
3: thank you for having me
1: what a great pleasure and privilege it was to rap rhapsodically with alicia malone i'm still pinching myself that that actually happened Alicia, my unbound gratitude for allowing me to talk at length with you about one of our favorite movies. Despite her busy schedule and multiple commitments, she was so kind and gracious in giving me a solid hour in which to examine Singing in the Rain and to share her observations and memories. So, thank you, thank you, thank you, Alicia. Next, as promised, stepping up to the Cineversary microphone is Brian Eggert. It's my pleasure to welcome Brian Eggert to Cineversary. Brian is the writer and owner of DeepFocusReview.com, one of my favorite sites that offers in-depth essays on classic films. He's also a Tomato Meter-approved critic, a member of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, Minnesota Film Critics Alliance, and Online Film and Television Association. Brian, I'm thrilled to have you on our show. Welcome.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. I'm honored to be
1: here. Fantastic. Yeah. So I ad- I deduce from your outstanding essay on Deep Focus Review, that essay on Singing in the Rain, that you're a fan of this film?
2: Uh, Yeah, I I absolutely love it. I think, you know, Singing in the Rain belongs on a short list of classical Hollywood musicals that, you know, maybe includes The Wizard of Oz, Yankee Doodle Dandy, and A Star is Born, where, you know, the music and story work in harmony. And I think that Mm. um, in itself is a special place, or, you know, there's a special quality that's rare within the genre for this period.
1: I have to ask you, how and when did you get started with Deep Focus Review? When did this officially get initiated?
2: Yeah, um, so I started the website, I guess almost fifteen, almost fifteen years exactly um, right now, mm. and uh, it was just kind of a you know on the side passion project, and then it slowly you know became something more serious. Um, you know, started to get press recognition, and you know, as you mentioned, I'm a Tomato Meter mo- approved critic now, so. Um, but I like to keep it, uh, I like to be independent because I, I don't like to take assignments and usually I want to avoid things that I don't want to write about or that don't interest me. Okay. So I love to have that sort of independence, um, but I do have you know pretty broad tastes, everything from you know classic Hollywood to cult horror to international and art house cinema. So mm-hmm. my readers can get a little bit of everything.
1: That's what I really admire about your site is it's not strictly classic Hollywood films that you focus on. You'll do a deep dive into a more contemporary movie across different genres, uh, which is really cool. And you really, really take your time to think deeply and cite some key sources in your bibliography, which you actually provide. A lot of people don't do that when, on their blogs. So, yeah, hats off to you, sir, because you're doing a great job.
2: Thanks, I appreciate that.
1: So let's uh, dig into this film a bit more. So I want to ask you first how and why Gene Kelly and Stanley Donen were perhaps the ideal collaborators for this movie. What talents and special qualities do they imbue the film with, Brian?
2: Uh, yeah, so I mean, Kelly was a was a born dancer, uh, you know, he grew up training in his family's dancing school uh, in Pennsylvania and performing on the stage. And um, that's really where Arthur Freed, whose unit at MGM was responsible for um, most of the studios, you know, musical factory products found him. And uh, so Kelly came to the screen with, you know, this this passion for dance, he really cared about representing the, the diversity of dancing styles. And, uh, you know, he was trained in everything from tap to, to vaudeville to ballet and everything in between.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, he really wanted to bring that to the screen and and uh, eventually he got enough control to where he could do that. And then by contrast, you know, Donnan was a born filmmaker who who had an appreciation for dance. Uh, he studied dance and actually uh, pursued a career uh, on Broadway. and Ultimately, the the technical aspects of filmmaking those interested him most. Um, but it was on Broadway during I think uh, I think the 1940s production of pal joey that that kelly met a teenage donnan and convinced him to join him in hollywood as an assistant so kelly and donnan you know they worked on a few mgm productions before uh, becoming really the central collaborators and getting that creative control right and it wasn't until uh on the town i think in 1949 that that kelly became the you know the central uh actor dancer choreographer of his production, and then at that point teamed with Donnan, who served as co-director on that film. So in that sense, you you have someone focused on dance and someone who is dance savvy, but also technically inclined, uh, who can realize, you know, Kelly's vision on screen. So my understanding of their working relationship is that Kelly really had the creative vision. Uh, he would explain what he wanted, and it was up to Donnan to kind of figure out how to realize that from behind the camera and Mm -hmm. you know these sort of relationships always have a power dynamic so kelly considered donnan more of an assistant um someone who followed orders more and and carried out his ideas though i suspect uh donnan had more input than kelly you know would claim especially given how effervescent much of Donan's later work would prove. Ultimately, though, I think it was Kelly's vision that gives Singing in the Rain its, its special quality, which is rare relationship between the dancer, the narrative, and the viewer. A few other musicals of the era have this. And, and Donan, while, while creative, was more, I think, of an innovator than a groundbreaker like Kelly. Donna could take someone's ideas and improve upon them which is Mm -hmm. a rare gift. And in some cases, he could mimic them very well. For instance, I think that that's why they often say that, uh, you know, Don created the best Hitchcock film not made by Hitchcock with Charade because he could look at Hitchcock's style and mimic it and try new things and and make it lighter. As I said, that's a rare gift. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting now that I think about it, because the year before Singing in the Rain, it was an American in Paris that won the Best Picture Oscar and, of course, uh, really charmed audiences everywhere, shown the spotlight on Kelly as this, you know, master dancer who was also big box office, of course. Yeah. Uh, but yet, yeah, that collaboration with uh, Vincent Minnelli was not a co-directing uh, collaboration. Do you know anything about that in terms of, was it strictly Donnan that... Kelly wanted to co-direct with on uh, a couple of these films. I'm just curious in terms of the timing of coming off of an American in Paris in which he did not have a directing credit,
2: yeah. So my understanding is that he could he could have more creative control over what was done. Manelli was more of a storyteller. And Kelly was more of a dancer and those things were separate. So so mm-hmm. it, my understanding on that film is that Kelly had control over, you know, the dance sequences and Minnelli sort of dominated how they were shot.
1: That would make sense. Yeah. And
2: there was a, a little bit more of a separation. I mean, it's a very good movie, but I, I would say that watching it today, you feel a little, I don't feel as emotionally invested in An in American in Paris as I do Singing in the Rain.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I, I just love the music in American in Paris because I love Gershwin one so much but I understand where you're coming from with that sentiment
2: yeah and and it's it's a it's a very typical musical in the sense that it's you know very stagey and you know you kind of have this sense that you're you're going to a a show and you're seeing something that you can only see on the screen but I guess Mm -hmm. when I think about that film I don't I, I don't think about the story I don't think about the emotions that it makes me feel
1: all right, let's dovetail back to Singing in the Rain specifically. So your deep focus review essay on the film talks about Cine dance. I really enjoyed this part of your write-up. Please describe what Cine dance is, what Kelly was going for, and how he achieved his Cine dance goals in Singing in the Rain.
2: Yeah, so ultimately, Cine dance is a way to use formal techniques uh, to allow the viewer to better appreciate the dancing on screen by creating a harmony between the dance and the narrative using every technical means at their disposal. So it goes back to, you know, architect Louis Sullivan's form follows function maxim musicals usually focus more on the pleasures of song and dance and not so much on the narrative. So here Kelly's—you know Kelly conceives this idea of Stenna dance as a novel take on the, on the form follows function idea. This stems from one of the problems with stage musicals being that there's a distance placed between the viewer and the dancers. Uh, if you're sitting in, let's say, the 10th row of Hamilton on Broadway, there might be five or 10 performers on stage. Each of them is doing their thing. And as a viewer you're bound to miss a few flourishes or individual performances sure. uh, because your eyes are moving around and scanning the stage uh-huh. and while you're trying to get a handle on everything that go, that's going on uh, you might miss some of the emotional oomph of the story so this is obviously one of the basic differences between you know film and stage but and film can direct the direct the eye to a specific spot but that's not always done in movie musicals so I mean, many Hollywood musicals from this period focus more on the on the spectacle of the song and dance of the story, very similar to what we were talking about with An American in Paris. Narrative is second. Singing in the Rain, though, has this harmony of song, dance, and stories that, that uh, you know, a few musicals of this era have. The standard musical of the time, you know, Top Hat, Stormy Weather, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, really anything by Busby Berkeley are meant to, you know, whisk you away into their musical qualities. You're you're watching for the for the showmanship, for the production values, maybe not so much the emotional impact. Mm. And then they're, you know, they're based on Broadway musicals of the time. So there's this quality of a mu- movie musical of this period being the equivalent of going to see a show. And many of those shows were like Broadway melody pictures that just have various tunes in there that were popular at the time. And they write, you know, they write a very thin narrative around those those songs, those popular songs. And there you go. There's your movie. That's very true of Singing in the Rain, too, because all of those songs were written beforehand uh, but they're just written in a way that that better integrates them into a narrative and then you know kind of as an aside i guess the typical way that hollywood musicals are shot uh, prior to singing on the rain was to choose a you know panoramic shot to capture a lot of action to capture a lot of spectacle as opposed to following with a single performer and you would sometimes get lost just like you would on this watching a stage production in the grand design or, or the spectacle of the dance so much so that the emotions fall short personally i i think this is why a lot of people don't like musicals yeah uh you know they they tend to seem pointlessly blithe or or overly focused on singing and dancing. People break into song for no reason and oftentimes there's just you know not a lot of substance to them because it's so focused on the spectacle and part of the reason that substance is lacking is because people are disengaged from the narrative. So all this is to say that what Kelly wanted to do was to give equal attention to narrative and dance and and, uh, shooting and arranging dances in a way that served the story. Uh, This meant that the dancer couldn't just be a dancer. They had to be a genuine actor too. They had to be capable Mm -hmm. of conveying emotion and telling a story. The dances also have to have an emotional result in the story and had to drive the story forward and add something. You know, Donnan had to shoot uh, the dancing in a way that serves both the dance and the narrative. Brian, I love what you wrote uh, in your essay here. I'll just quote you directly. Uh, You you wrote
1: that the key to cine dance was shooting dance in such a way that dance never distracted from the film's narrative thrust. To uh, accomplish this, Donnan used tracking and crane camera techniques that trailed the dancing without the wobbly movements of earlier musicals. Allowing singing in the rain's dance sequences to contain a rare faithfulness to the narrative for a Hollywood musical as the songs and dance blend seamlessly with the drama and humor. So uh, interesting tracking and crane camera techniques. Yeah, do you want to drill down uh, into what you're talking about there in terms of uh, some of his directorial choices or their co-directorial choices?
2: There are lots of moments, I would say, in a lot of um, master and medium shots where where you're up close with the individual Meanwhile, that's also creating like an intimacy with the characters on screen. I guess the opposite of this panoramic or spectacle style that, that I was talking about earlier um, is true in Hollywood musicals as well, because people could get too close to the dancing. Uh, they would use close ups or like insert, insert shots of, you know, feet moving or editing to cut up various pieces of the dance. and. That is has the same problem where you're you're not giving the dance its due. That may get you more intimate with the characters, but it, you're sacrificing the integrity of the dance for the narrative. Right. So Donnan is is allowing the you know the dance to unfold in such a way that uh, honors the dance, also honors the characters. You're allowed to be close to these characters and, and watch what they're doing, appreciate what they're doing, but also experience you know the importance of the scene that you're in.
1: Yeah, that really makes sense, Brian, and I appreciate the extrapolation of what you were going for in the essay there. Can you point to any other ways in which Kelly and Donnan were innovative in their choreography, their dancing, or their filmmaking here? Anything that we haven't touched on yet as far as uh, innovative approaches to producing Singing in the Rain?
2: Yeah, so kind of going back to that form follows function idea, I think, and we, we haven't mentioned them yet, but, you know, Betty Comden and Adolph Green who, who wrote the screenplay? Uh, they're finding mm-hmm. ways of integrating characters and scenes within the narrative so that they're not just these frivolous interludes, um, like so many mu- musicals before had done. They're not just dance for dance's sake, they really have a place in the story. And so, you know, Don's camera follows the dancers is really keeping with, like, Kelly or Donald O'Connell framed uh, so that we can see their skill. as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Each song in its way is also dealing with, you know, the crisis of Don Lockwood experiencing, you know, moving from the silent era... To sound filmmaking and some of the songs like make him laugh or moses supposes focus on the goals and work of being entertainers you know some songs are about falling in love like singing in the rain uh-huh. and some like you were meant for me are about relationships of the characters and that's just one thing that's so interesting about uh, most of these songs is that they as i mentioned before they were written a decade earlier by arthur freed and, and nasio Herb brown but they were Integrated so well into the story uh by, by the filmmakers. Yes. Um I mean one thing I love about *Stinging in the Rain is this ambition that Kelly had of using the film as a as a broadway review of dancing styles. Where some musicals focus on one type of music or dancing style. This one has ballet, it has, you know, tap, it has Cosmo's wild slapstick dance sequence from Make them Laugh. Yeah,
0: you're right. It
2: has, you know whimsical you know whimsical scenes that feel like you're in a dream and yet it's all very grounded within the story everything has a has a purpose and what's more a self-aware purpose which is what i one of the reasons that i love this movie so much so you know for instance when when the movie fades into this elaborate you know eight minute broadway melody ballet sequence which is a lot of For a lot of people, you know, where the movie loses them. For me, it's in service of you know Don's ideas about the dancing cavalier, this movie that he wants to make, And, and what he and this is what he envisions for the production. So it's not just a frivolous, even though even though it is, it's not just a frivolous scene. Uh, for that eight minutes, the viewer appreciates the, the, the sequence's various dance styles, but there's always a point to it. I mean, even the most fantastical flourishes in the film, which look like you're going through this surreal tour of various sets and dancing styles, they have a very you know practical place in the, in the story. What I really love about about what Kelly and Don are doing here is that you, you understand where movie magic is coming from. Whereas other musicals just present the movie magic uh, Singing in the Rain is doing this with with a purpose of of exposing Hollywood's artifice, that's and right. not only exposing it, but really embracing how that artifice is beautiful, even though it's fake.
1: Yeah, it's well put.
2: There's that scene where where Don sings, "Kathy, uh, you were meant for me." You see him turning on the lights and the fans on a soundstage, and he's making the setting beautiful. We're seeing, you know, all the tricks of the trade, and it doesn't make it any less entrancing. Um, you know, it, it's still beautiful, even though we can see, you know, that going on. It, it's like seeing, you know, the great and powerful Oz behind the curtain <laughs> and still finding his tricks impressive, despite you knowing that he's pulling the levers. Right. It's just a fascinating way of uh, deconstructing the musical.
1: So well put. Is there anything else about Singing in the Rain that you wanted to mention here before
2: we conclude? So many genres today have become very postmodern and self-referential and that's not really that doesn't happen a lot in musicals the musicals today are still pretty relatively straightforward right you know aside from Jacques Demy musicals like you know the umbrellas of Cherbourg or or young girls of Rochefort that are playing with the musical format in interesting ways um, we're getting straightforward Disney musicals or we're getting you know all those musical biopics that are happening today or or even something like La La Land, which I think is you know pretty straightforward.
1: Yeah, throwback.
2: Yeah, the one recent musical that I can think that is doing something meta is like Walk Hard: The Dewey Cox Story, which is <laughs> I, I think is a genuinely good musical, but it's also deconstructing the format like this. So, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately I think you know Singin' in the Rain is kind of just the the ultimate MGM musical. It's telling us what we love or reminding us what we love about movie musicals, and yet giving us a story about the making of a musical. That's really rare.
1: Brian, that was a great encapsulation. I thank you, sir. I really love your site. I hope listeners, will you will go check it out. Again, it's deepfocusreview.com. Brian Eggert is the owner, essayist, author, chief cook, and bottle washer. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Brian, it was a wonderful treat to talk to you here, and I hope we can do it again, maybe with another definitive movie. What do you say?
2: Absolutely. You keep up the great work. Thanks, you too.
1: A lot of fun to drill down further into the core of Singing in the Rain with Brian and learn more about how and why Kelly and Company made it so special. Yeah, Brian, it was great to meet you, and I hope we can powwow again on a future birthday film. Thank you, sir. Time again for standing ovations. This is where I give a shout-out to a film website, podcast, book, television program, or other work that I think would be of interest to classic film lovers just like you. For April, we pivot back to TCM classic movie queen, Alicia Malone, who recently launched a monthly series exclusively on YouTube called A Thousand Words. Every episode of this series of short videos features Alicia and a different special guest who discuss a specific topic relevant to film history that has resonance today. Case in point, the first installment focuses on fashion history, in which Alicia and fashion historian Riza Britana explore wardrobe and clothing choices in classic films and their impact on fashion and pop culture. Future monthly topics of A Thousand Words have yet to be determined, but you'll want to keep this series on your radar because truthfully, folks, it is both informative and really entertaining, looking at different aspects of movie making from a modern lens. So check it out yourself at tinyurl.com slash one zero 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 words. TCM. Instead of cluttering up our podcast with advertisements, we've decided to ask our listeners for their support. We could use your help to offset the costs to produce Cineversary, which includes expenses like podcast hosting provider fees. If you'd like to make a monetary contribution to the Cineversary podcast in any amount, large or small, we've made it safe and simple by partnering with PayPal to collect the funds. Simply visit tinyurl.com, that's T I N Y U R L.com, slash, donate and click on the donate button. Any major credit card is accepted, and the entire transaction is handled securely and confidentially by PayPal. Or if you're familiar with PayPal, you can simply send us a payment in any amount you want to Cineverse group at gmail.com, and that's spelled C I N E V E R S E group at gmail.com. We really appreciate your generosity. Also, I'd love to hear what you think of our Cineversary podcast. You can email me suggestions or comments at cineversegroup@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And I encourage you to visit cineversegroup.com, the portal for my film discussion group that I launched in 2005, where you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and read more about the movies we study. In May, every year you can count on warmer temperatures, right? And that's the perfect time for a drama about hot lead and an old-timey showdown among the sagebrush. Yes, next month we will pay homage and send 70th birthday wishes to an undisputed classic in the Western genre. It's High Noon, starring Gary Cooper and directed by Fred Zinneman, which originally premiered overseas in May 1952. Until then, this is your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies. Because they're not getting older, they're getting wetter. I I mean better. Sorry, that's what happens when you have singing in the rain on the brain, right? (laughs) Thanks again for giving us a listen.